Thank you for investing your time into Duncan's From the Field podcast series. We hope you are getting a ton of value from the podcast. We also post From the Field videos weekly on Duncan's LinkedIn and Pareto Systems YouTube channel and post everything we do on our homepage at paretosystems.com. Today's podcast is pulled from a recent webinar we hosted with a great partner of ours, Scott Wetzel, Managing Partner at Succession Lending. Enjoy. All right. Welcome, everyone, to The Art of Buying a Business. We are excited to introduce one of our great partners, Scott Wetzel, who is the Managing Partner of Succession Lending. Succession Lending is a niche commercial lending firm focused exclusively on the financing needs of independent and registered financial advisors. They focus on providing financial advisors capital for practice succession, acquisition, merger, debt restructure, and working capital. And as always, I would like to introduce Duncan McPherson, speaker, business coach, and best-selling author. Duncan? Okay, Tyler, thank you very much. And uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And Scott, really glad you could work this into your schedule. I know you're busy, but I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while. And uh, just first of all, I'll just let you say hi. Uh, well, yeah, definitely thank you for, for having Succession on the call. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just right up front, everybody, um, I know Scott and his team, and uh, I love these guys. Uh, they are such professionals in this space. And I was describing you today, Scott. I said, you know what I like about these guys is that they don't act like bankers. They act like business people. They, they, they think like entrepreneurs. And they also understand that it's only – value added if it's something the client actually values and your commitment to value added uh, to the clientele that, you, clientele that you serve is very, very impressive. And this is an example of that. So again, really looking forward to uh, what we have uh, in this conversation today. So as you can see on this slide, and as Tyler mentioned, this is the art of buying a business. And what this ultimately means is this is for the advisor who is thinking about not only mastering, refining and optimizing their core enterprise, their organic business, but turning their entire approach into an intellectual property. So essentially professionalizing everything they do, standardizing everything they do, and then monetizing beyond just consistent client acquisition and enterprise value, but to the point of scalable growth, which involves acquiring a business or attracting an advisor uh, to draft in behind their process. And Scott, as you and I discussed before, there are many advisors who have come to the realization that it is far more efficient to acquire one business or one advisor than it is to acquire 50 new clients. So that's what we'd like to talk about today. We want to give you the why and the how. I will mention while I'm thinking about it, first of all, uh, there's a bookended podcast that we have uh, on our blog at ParetoSystems.com. And it's how to become the franchise-ready advisor, how to 
fully turn your book into a business for scalable growth. So if what we talked about today resonates, then you can go a little deeper by getting that podcast. And then if you want to check in with us to go beyond that, then by all means. So Scott, first of all, would you mind just giving a little bit of a backdrop on the origins of your firm and what a typical day in the life is where you make yourself indispensable to your clients. And then we'll drill down into the art of buying a business. Uh, absolutely. Thank you, Duncan. Um, you know, origins of succession lending as a firm, really recognizing a need and, and really a gap in financing options available to financial advisors uh, in the independent and registered investment advisory space for uh, a myriad of needs, but, but most acutely in, the, in this environment uh, for practice succession, as we have, as most of you are aware, r- roughly 100,000 advisors set to retire by 2025, uh, acquisition, uh, as well as merger and uh, refinancing. That uh, we, we see a marketplace that historically for the independent and registered advisor that was really only seller financing available to really transition the practice to the next generation advisors where ex- at succession, we're, we're trying to f- provide a cost effective solution to the advisor that's not in an SBA wrapper, but in a conventional wrapper that allows for the, the senior advisor to uh, transition that practice uh, to the next uh, generation of financial advisors with the requisite capital in hand to do so. And that's why where the firm was founded, the niche that we're serving. Uh, day in the life, you know, we're constantly on the road, constantly meeting with clients, and we're constantly helping clients through this process. If you look at, you know, what what our process is com- comprised of, uh, tomorrow morning we meet with a bank in Houston as we're trying to always add banks to our network, which is exceptionally difficult. I, I'd say that 97% of banks have zero interest in lending to financial advisors, which we find a little counterintuitive and odd because of that 97%, probably 50% have a wealth management department. Uh, but of that 3%, we're looking for that 3% that are willing to lend to financial advisors, but also lend to financial advisors in a non-SBA structure and a conventional financing that's more cost-effective and is certainly less restrictive uh, than what you'd find in an, in an SBA wrapper that provides the bank with a lot of guarantees and also the the borrower, the advisor in this case, with uh, a lot of costs. Gotcha. And just to go off script for a second, because you said something to me yesterday that really hit home uh, just in that conversation we had, where it really actually validated that you recognize the importance of a financial advisor professionalizing and standardizing their business, turning their book into a business. Because, and not to paraphrase too much, I'll let you actually um, dig into this, but you, you commented on the fact that it is so much easier for a financing uh, firm to buy into this if they know the advisor has bought into best practices and structure and they run their business 
like a business. Could you could you just expand on that a little bit? Yeah, and, and Duncan, I can say this, that if an advisor is really operating as a sole practitioner and really not as an enterprise, we find them as excellent acquisition targets. Uh, yet we're less inclined and we probably would uh, have a hard time finding a lending uh, partner that was willing to fund an advisor not uh, not engaging clients and not operating truly as an, as an enterprise. Uh, that, that truly to scale in a, another practice, we need to be assured that that advisor has scaled their service, their investment policy. Every part of their practice has a requisite personnel in place to assume that practice because presumptively they'll be taking on at least double the number of households, double the number of uh, amount of AUM. And we're looking at advisor to say, is this advisor prepared for that transaction? And I can tell you that yesterday, unfortunately, we had a decline for an advisor, a younger advisor trying to buy a larger practice that uh, quantitatively the cash flow worked uh, from the bank standpoint. Fundamentally, we, we were challenged with this advisor had absolutely no process in place to actually scale into this larger practice. Whereas we had another applicant whose cash flow was less attractive to a bank, but we were able to uh, retain financing because the, the advisor was, uh, had been through Pareto and had everything systematized in his practice, had the personnel uh, from top to bottom prepared to acquire this other practice. Therefore, we could get the bank comfortable, in this case, two different banks bidding on this particular client, with this acquisition from this particular client, although the cash flow was less attractive, let's say the quantitative factors, uh, the qualitative factors being a process-oriented advisor, and I, I apologize, I don't know the exact vernacular of all your programs, but he had been through one of the Pareto programs, and it was clear to us that he was prepared to acquire. And because of it, uh, we closed the financing yesterday. Yeah, that's fantastic. And incidentally, just on a personal side, um, I am very impressed that when we do introduce someone to you, I know exactly how that's going to reflect back on us because of the way you conduct yourself and the feedback I get is uh, nothing short of uh, impeccable. So thanks for that. So let me just say, uh, and of course, for somebody in the wirehouse who wants to become franchise ready, typically they're going to get financing from within. Uh, the firm wants to retain the assets and uh, there's a massive multiplier, and to your point, Scott, I mean, when somebody doubles their business, they still only have 24 hours in the day. So it's not like to necessarily work harder. The process, the efficiency, the structure, the client experience has to be incredibly streamlined. And the thing I like about this space is that how often do you see where there's a multiplier the advisor acquires a business that subconsciously that business that they acquire has been somewhat neglected. And when they attract and transition those clients over, there is a vein of gold of untapped opportunity because the client experience is elevated by virtue of contrast. Uh, whether that uh, selling advisor is going to transition out of the business or become a protege tucking in behind the acquiring advisor, that the net net trickle down to the client is dramatically elevated because of those best practices. And I know you see that on a regular basis. 
you know, we, we see that in 97 plus percent of acquisitions, the actual end client investor experience is certainly enhanced by a, a, a new buyer. And it's, it's a, it's a function of number one demographics that, you know, the average age of today's seller is roughly 67. So I hope we're all going at a slower speed than we are today at 67. And, and, but as a result, the, the, that advisor's clients are receiving uh, less service, and less attention than today's buyers. So right. we don't find any applicants coming to succession that aren't absolutely driven individuals that are running an enterprise. These, these are well-run organizations that are looking to scale their practice. And they're recognizing that they'd rather do that in $50 million chunks or $500 million chunks than in $500,000 chunks. And really, it, the, uh, the process and the marketing of it is really no different. But at the end of the day, where, where we find it, going to your vein of gold question, that oftentimes advisors say, well, I, I don't want to acquire right now the, the valuations, the market's you know, overpriced, you know, so if I'd pay too much for practice, I, I, I guess I won't comment on where the market is in terms of PE, but I can tell you that at roughly two times uh, revenue is the kind of the going rate in the industry. We think that practices are exceptionally undervalued at this point. Because uh, if you look at um, like uh, other industries, service industries, dental, uh, veterinarian being two examples, they're trading in multiples of five to seven times revenue. And what is the primary difference between our industry and those industries? Essentially the access to financing is the primary difference. So, and then on top of that, if advisors are going in and purchasing a practice that's not run as an enterprise at two times revenue, we typically find that there's about an 11% client or household attrition rate. But 80% of that is voluntary on behalf of the acquiring advisor because the acquiring advisor goes in and, and for certain clients that, you know, the, the seller had to keep that uncle with 50,000, that's a lot of service. Well, the new advisor coming in certainly sheds those uh, lower AUM households in the more scalable practice and ultimately uh, elevates uh, revenue from that practice that the multiple that the buyer ends up paying is somewhere uh, far south of two times. It typically ends up being, let's call it 1.7 to uh, 1.8 because the actual AUM, and I'll say attrition rate, is about 120%, which again seems counterintuitive, but with a younger enterprising advisor going in, taking over a book of, I think half the industry is still in American funds, right? Taking over those assets, converting it to, to fee base, converting it to their their system, uh, revenues dramatically increase, and also clients are desirous of an advisor that they know is going to take them through the remainder of their uh, of their investable uh, career or life, right? And at, at 67, clients uh, you know have stopped bringing new assets to aging advisors because they're asking the question, but probably not saying it to the advisor of, you know, what's your plan? Because, uh, you know, I, I need to keep withdrawing from this or investing in this account uh, long past the next 10 years. Okay. So two phenomenal points there before we move into the next slide and start drilling down into the nuts and bolts here. First of all, your examples there, uh, where the multiples are so much higher in completely different sectors. 
the irony is a lot of people who are buying those practices are often buying a job. And the scalable limitations are very, they're quite severe in those sectors. What we see is the scalability by virtue of process, technology, efficiency, by, by getting all of the people on the bench to buy into the process, scalability can be unlimited, especially when the protégés are, are empowered by the process. They're not winging it. They're not left to their own devices. And the second thing is, based on demography, an advisor who addresses his or her own continuity and succession issues in real time is making himself or herself indispensable to their clients who they themselves have their own family investment legacy and continuity and succession issues. And if you think of the book, The Millionaire Next Door, when money does go into motion and changes hands, from first generation earned money to second generation found money, often what happens is it leaves the financial advisor in that transition. So there are a multitude of really interesting benefits that come from this. Um, and your point about driving up the, the multiples, uh, I mean, that's, that's terrific. So uh, we'll come back to that, but let's get in uh, onto the agenda and onto the track here. I want to just remind everybody, and some of this is pretty self-evident, but there are three powerful forces that are at work in this industry. Scott, you've talked about demography, the average age, uh, and there are a lot of people who are a year, three years, five years out from an exit. They're starting to think about monetizing. The ideal advisor in that group, within the 100,000 you described, the ideal advisor is not only trying to take money off the table, they want their clients left in good hands. That's important to them from the standpoint of a legacy. So you've got demography as a driver, it's a powerful force. The second driver, of course, is commoditization. There are many advisors. I mean, it is Darwinian, they're under siege because uh, the emphasis now is on what they cost, not what they're worth. And they're playing defense because of fee compression. They're getting bogged down in the minutia of the compliance and regulatory world. And uh, it's just getting too hard. And they're not viable because uh, they're not at a level where it's sustainable beyond commoditization. And then of course you see consolida uh, consolidation in the industry where there are these acquisitions occurring but it's not impacting the client favorably. And I think if you can get clear on these forces and let them serve you as sort of true north, governing you through this process, it'll be very, very powerful. Now, I do want to talk about the dual track here, the, the multiplier of benefits. Somebody who strives to become franchise ready and gets ready to acquire a business or attract an advisor to draft in, or even buy a remnant. It forces them to refine and optimize their existing approach with their organic clients, their existing clients, to competitor-proof and maximize uh, those relationships and create organic advocacy from within their existing client base. So there's really a two-for-one that comes from going through 
this exercise. And as it says on the slide there, it is by design, not by chance. We've cracked the code, we've engineered this, and we wanna talk about what that looks like uh, in terms of the process. Now, before I move on, Scott, do you wanna add anything to that? No, you know, I, I'd absolutely you know, agree. And I think the key thing there is that we're, we're gonna have a struggle financing any advisor that's not operating as an enterprise. I mean, because the banks are relying on our fundamental qualitative uh, analysis of the practices that exceeds mere cash flow analysis to ensure that they're funding practices that are prepared to scale. So to that extent, minus um, scalability, there, there's also no funding available. Yeah, good point. And um, yeah, okay. So I, I know we're gonna drill down into that a little bit further, but let me, let me address some of these key points that you see uh, on the slide. And I, I skipped over the addressable audiences. We're gonna be covering this throughout as well, but these are the addressable audiences that you have in terms of uh, scale. There's the demographic driver, okay? So the, the advisor who wants to sell the business and quickly or gradually transition out. That's number one. Number two, there is the protege, the younger advisor who has done a lot, uh, but they've bumped up against the plateau. The friction is so severe. And one of the causes of that is they've been fixating solely on their technical ability as a wealth manager. And that unfortunately is being commoditized. That's a minimum requirement is to be good at managing money. The things that contribute to the plateau is the advisor who is not realizing that the same level of importance has to be applied to managing the business and managing relationships as they manage someone's money. Okay. And then there's the remnant. And this is really fun. So all of the advisors who are in that sort of uh, the back nine of their careers, for lack of a better term, they've got 300 clients. They have no real interest in getting out. But they want to go from 300 clients down to 50 clients. So they want to focus on the 20% who generate 80% of the business. And they want to liberate themselves to go live their lives. Uh, so they're going to gradually transition and disassociate from the 80% who generate 20% of the business. That's a remnant. And that is a, an incredible vein of gold because often within that group of clients, there's this movable middle who are either on the verge of or already have uh, inherited money or they're about to have a liquidity event of some kind or just because of neglect, they've only been a customer instead of a fully empowering client. There is so much upside uh, that comes from that remnant. So those are the three addressable audiences. But let's, let's shift now and go a little deeper into um, the concept of really assessing the business and the distinction between working on your business and working in your business as Michael Gerber would say. So the concept of professionalizing and standardizing to make you not only fee worthy and to make you 
referable, but also to make you worthy for financing that Scott was talking about, is to transform all of your qualities, your skills, and your intentions, and to turn them into intellectual property that drives your enterprise value and consistency in the client experience. So where it says welcome to the C-suite, what that means is you go beyond just being a good CFO, someone who manages money. You become a CEO. You become a CTO, a CIO, a chief information officer, a COO, operations, CMO, marketing. You take a look at all of those different um, components and you professionalize and standardize them. Now, that might sound like work. It might sound somewhat abstract. We have that as a defined process because everything is a process, okay? It's not uh, just about you being a good communicator, articulating values so people understand and appreciate what you do is a process. And the concept of going from organic to scale means you're a messenger. We want to refine and optimize the message so you could give that message to a different messenger and they could represent your value consistently. So practice management, relationship management, this is an intellectual property that will impact your organic business and make scalable growth through acquisition or attraction, not just predictable, but probable. Okay, so that's how you, when you, when you specialize and standardize, that's how you monetize. And it's interesting, Scott, because you were the first person I met in your space that immediately got that. It wasn't just about AUM. It was about these other sort of, some people would think of them as X factors. You actually saw them as intellectual property. And that's, I think, why uh, we got along so well. Well, it, it's certainly something that is requisite for our communication with the banks um, to get them comfortable with uh, lending to financial advisors. That uh, unless we're able to display and depict uh, how these practices are being run as an enterprise, um, funding is not available to um, someone who's not. And, and candidly, as we've talked to banks, when we question them like, why, what, and they, historically you've not done advisory loans, and why is that? And uh, candidly, they've said that financial advisors are quote unquote unorganized, which you know we found a bit offensive, you know, more unorganized than Pete's uh, Pizza Parlor or Jerry's Car Wash. And at the end of the day, um, the answer is actually yes, but in only one niche area. And Doug and I realize I'm going off uh, script here and off direct point, but really financial advisors have never applied for a commercial uh, loan before. And, and if they have, it's possibly once in their career. And where we're helping advisors is really preparing for that process but the first step before we can prepare your practice for presentation to the bank, you need to be running an enterprise practice to scale it. Otherwise, our job is yeah. impossible in terms of presenting. We take all your financials, we, we, we bundle together, we look at the fundamentals, 
we we're speaking the language to the banks. Hopefully we never act like a bank because that's no fun to deal with. Trust me, it's painful for us daily, but, and we're communicating that, that value and those fundamentals and that cash flow to the, the banking industry to allow them to fund because liquidity needs and should be available to financial advisors. It's just been too long that our industry has been left out in the cold. Yeah. Well, and you know, listen, you, you made a great reference to the dental industry and how they are poster boys and girls for uh, consistency, standard operating procedure, best practices. And if you think about it, by necessity, they've had to because of the degree of dread factor their clientele has in coming to their business. And then, of course, they realize, look, if we left it to our clients, to call us to schedule their cleaning or to, to have a checkup, it wouldn't happen. So by them future pacing and, and framing it where we'll schedule it for you and creating an experience that was as comfortable as possible um, to, to offset the dread. And then look at just the fact that a dentist, again, 24 hours in the day, so instead of trading time for money, like try to get a dentist on the phone. Try to call one and get them on the phone. And how much time when you go to a dental office do you actually spend with the dentist? Like they, they have ma maximized. They, they put more sand in their hourglass. They're buying time. It's like going from a hammer to a nail gun in terms of efficiency because they run the business like a business. And your point about the multiples in the dental industry is fantastic. We wanna see bigger multiples in the advisory business for the same reasons. They, they manage their time, they allocate their time, they rely on process to create consistency. Everything's documented, everything's professionalized, and it's by design. And uh, so yeah, that's, that's great. So I wanna talk about the bridge, okay? So we often talk about being fee-worthy, and we often talk about being referable. I want to talk about, you know, in the spirit of Confucius, who said, dig your well before you're thirsty, I want to talk about the concept of being worthy of financing quickly through the concept of um, looking at your organic business, like proof of concept. I, I would like everybody who's listening in to take the next three to six months to elevate the client experience of their existing relationships, to go back and reframe and reintroduce themselves to their clients, to elevate how they're perceived and described, to create those efficiencies, to strengthen those relationships, but at the same point, to document their process. Okay, there's a powerful rule in practice management. It's called the rule of three. Anything you do three or more times that has three or more steps must be documented in a playbook and must be tied to the org chart based on roles or responsibilities, tied to the procedures manual based on how they're deployed, tied to the service matrix, tied to client classification and the service model. This is a powerful exercise. It is not uncommon to see the quality and quantity of referrals and advisor attracts, to see them uncover new business, 
from existing long-term relationships and to prevent any departures, any defections of clients who may have drifted into a pattern of familiarity. So your proof of concept to make you worthy of financing for a potential acquisition actually starts with your existing business. Once you've proven that out, you've demonstrated the lift that comes from within, then you will have positioned yourself to turn your book into a business that could be scaled. So uh, Scott, in just a second, I wanna talk about what that looks like, the advisor fit process, the advisor onboarding process. But before I do, I want you to uh, comment based on your instincts and your insights over the years about how when somebody gets their house in order, how there is a multitude of benefits because of the immediate lift and windfalls they see from within, but how it prepares them for that scalable growth. You know, Duncan, it's been fairly fascinating for me. I've been in the industry for 20 years and I've seen the evolution of a, a new type of financial advisor that we internally refer to as a serial acquirer. Um, it, it's almost as if they're acting in an iBanking capacity that they have systematized their practice, their procedures, to the extent that they are now able to focus exclusively on practice acquisition. And as we're talking to many of these, you know, I talk to like, you know, how, many, how many client meetings you do a year and uh, how often do you do this? And, and a lot of them are to the point of being solely the CEO of that entity and therefore, they are no longer meeting with the 80% of the book that makes up 20% of the production, but they are still servicing. They have uh, essentially onboarded the right personnel in their practice to alleviate their time to go out and act at, really as an eye banker, uh, finding practices, acquiring practices, and scaling practices into their existing practice. So. It's been an interesting evolution to watch that it's a, it's no longer, uh, the profession can no longer be classified as financial advisor. It's truly a CEO role that's focused on M&A activity. And we find some advisors wish to proceed and just uh, having their two to three to five client meetings a day where others uh, wish to grow through acquisition and going through acquisition is, is M&A work. Yeah, and what's interesting, and I'm sure you've seen this, um, most of the advisors that have made that transition, it's not like their technical ability in terms of how they manage money and deliver on their core competency, it's not like that really changes a whole lot. Uh, what they've gotten good at are the areas that you described, and that creates the scale. You think of anything that scales, whether it's technology or um, you know franchises, the whole concept of something going viral or hitting that inflection point, uh, it comes from that that standardization. And you've also seen the fulfillment factor, where somebody gets out of trading their time for money, uh, transacting based on their core competency. Uh, there's a huge rejuvenator around personal fulfillment and a sense of purpose. You know, self-actualization when somebody uh, and I've got clients myself who have done it 20 or 30 times, um, it's very liberating for them. They, they elevate themselves and they feel very, very good because as one of my clients said, actually the same guy who said, why would I bring on 50 clients when I could bring on 
one advisor, uh, he also said that my, you know, he said to me, my relevance and my enthusiasm for the industry has gone up when I stopped selling something and I started building something. It revealed something in him, uh, which was quite incredible. So what I'd like to shift to now is I want to talk about uh, a philosophy, uh, not unlike, you know, if you think about an advisor who shifts from salesmanship to stewardship with clients, the same holds true um, with attracting advisors, whether it's an advisor selling or drafting or uh, the remnant. So the premise is, if you think of supply and demand, how, you know, the, the vast numbers of people out there that are going to in, uh, become one of those three addressable uh, groups. It can't be a sales process where the advisor is trying to convince another advisor to sell or tuck in or uh, unload a portion of the business. It's got to be based on an alignment of interest. It's got to be a good fit. It's got to be driven by a fit process. So the alignment of interest comes from sitting down and getting really clear on the unmet needs that the uh, prospective advisor has. So it's interesting. When that first meeting is all about fit, driven by an agenda, and driven by a Socratic method of asking great questions, looking into the future. Where do you see yourself in three to five years? What is nirvana for you? What are you trying to accomplish? Why is this important to you? You know, that series of questions to help create that uh, connection is very, very powerful. And then looking for the multipliers where one plus one equals obviously three or more instead of 1.5. And Scott, I know you've seen that before where uh, somebody has acquired a business and one plus one equals 1.5 or less and the hassle factor was awful because of the absence of a good fit, a good alignment of interest and an absence of process. Um, but I just want to start philosophically by saying it is a fit process that is methodical, it's sequential, it builds on itself. So it's not a sales encounter. And that applies to all three groups, okay? It's not uncommon that I've seen an advisor who initially talked to a prospective advisor about that advisor getting out of the industry completely. It's just been become too hard, the dread factor is too high, and they wanna go live their lives, okay? So the, the last couple of years, it's been costing the advisor more and it's been getting him or her, and they just had enough. And then ironically, this is an advisor with 300 clients and, you know, a meaningful business, call it $100 million, um, but just, just they're done. By going through the fit process, it's revealed that that advisor would be better off staying in the business, keeping 50, 60, 70 clients, restoring the things that he really liked about the business and disassociating from that remnant group of clients who have been neglected. And the acquisition cost of that remnant to the 
acquiring advisor was dramatically lower than buying the entire business and the unmet or, or sort of the untapped opportunity based on the uh, uh, on the dormant uh, seeds that existed in that business were massive so and Duncan can I can I just uh, uh, interrupt here quickly of course yeah of course as it relates to fit um, you know, uh, although we do find the fit in philosophy and culture and between the selling advisor and the buying advisor being important, we rarely find that there's alignment uh, because, again, you're selling from a sole practitioner to an, to an enterprise. However, where we find fit, culture, philosophy exceptionally important is the individuals that will be remaining with the seller's practice to help the buyer scale that new practice. It's one of the key fundamental factors that we're examining uh, as we're looking at each acquisition. Yeah. So I, I, I would actually contend that as you're working with prospective sellers, I'd be less concerned about how well you get along with the seller because you're probably not gonna have uh, much contact with that seller nine to 12 to 18 months from uh, the close date. However, you are going to have daily contact with the key personnel that have really been responsible for the day-to-day -day relationships with those clients. That uh, we've, One of our major risk factors that we find concerning about transactions is that the advisor says, yeah, I'm gonna go in and fire everybody and just use my staff. That's problematic. Um, we want those key people yes. remaining with that practice that if Deb was a person that picked up the phone every day that the clients liked that really took care of most of the problems, while the advisor was scaling the practice and really just dealing with client meetings, we want to ensure that Deb is a part of the equation of that new practice. And also that Deb is a welcome part of the equation. And, and we, we typically recommend uh, transition incremental compensation for those key client-facing personnel. Yeah. Well, there's such a, a, a plethora of benefits there, too, because ultimately what you're describing there minimizes the disruption to the client uh, at the end of the day. So that obviously keeps the clients in place. But the other thing that's interesting, and I know you've seen this, too, is that the, the tighter the playbook is and the, and the structure is, geography is, becomes a non-factor. I mean, I've seen advisors acquire other businesses from two or three time zones away. And because there was a playbook and a thread that wove through the enterprise that the acquiring team could buy into to uh, elevate their existing client experience, geography wasn't a factor. And sometimes the advisor who says, I'm going to transition out in six to 12 months, uh, decides to stick around a little bit longer because they are rejuvenated. And that, of course, uh, makes the transition and the disruption, um, you know, it's just that is addressed. And, and again, so much uh, upside. So, yeah, very, very good point. Um, so, you know, in our world, the advisor fit process, once the alignment of interest is established and the rules of engagement are established, then, of course, the transition uh, to onboarding occurs. So just to talk about the timeline for a second, 
not uncommon, we'll work with an enterprise for six months to get them franchise ready. It's not uncommon, and Scott, you've seen variations on this, where the fit process can take 30, 60, 90 days, sometimes more. Sometimes it's, you know, the alignment is so clear, it's, it's sometimes faster, and there's all kinds of other uh, needs, health issues, personal issues that can accelerate or slow it down, whatever the case may be. But when it's a defined process, there's no mystery on where we are in the fit process. And then the onboard, the transition for the clients, we want that to be as methodical as possible. Uh, and it's generally about three to six months to transition. And again, there's different senses of urgency and stages of readiness, but that's generally good because we want to prime the pump, so to speak, with those clients as the transition is occurring so that they actually view this as an upgrade. They're not being handed off. They're not being sold as an asset in a business transaction. This is a nice transition where uh, the synergies are, are self-evident. Everybody wins. So the advisor onboarding process, again, as you can see, that, that statement, you don't just do it for what it gets you. You do it for what it makes of you. The, we often see as a proof of concept, an advisor needs to acquire three businesses or attract a combination of one business, one advisor, and one remnant to work out the kinks and to document and standardize and refine everything into that intellectual property, that playbook. Generally, it's that rule of three on that level as a proof of concept. Um, once they've got those three, they've pretty much seen it all and they are ready to really um, uh, raise the game and, and really uh, see that gather some momentum. So uh, I want you to think in terms of where are the unmet needs, defining the fit process and working through that methodically to get to that alignment of interest, and then to think of the advisor on board um, uh, as a process and how to standardize that based on that rule of three. So, uh, Scott, do you want to chime in on that? Uh, no, I, I, I'm in complete agreement again. I, that's, I, I would call it the building blocks of preparing. Um, we, we, we do see that uh, similar to just organic growth, we see uh, acquisition um, growth plateauing at a certain level. And whether an advisor requires one practice and that's all that they've built their process to essentially absorb, or if they've built an enterprise that is capable of acquiring 10, 15, 20 different practices on a national basis. And to what extent how the advisor wants to grow that practice, but there's, there's certainly a, a number of, of uh, acquisitions. I would say it's one to two before the, advisor feels most comfortable with the acquisition process and is better able to scale the third, fourth, fifth acquisition. But oftentimes we find them uh, unable to scale any further because they don't have the internal processes in place to go further. 
So I want to, before we shift into a call to action and where everyone can go from here, I want to ask you a couple of questions because uh, I know you've got a lot of experience here. What are, what are common mistakes advisors make when it comes to venturing into this, uh, this space? You know, I, I would say absolutely by far and away the number one mistake, and there is not a close number two, uh, is that advisors tell me, well, you know, I talked to some senior advisors I thought uh, that would be interested in selling, and, yeah, the conversation just really didn't go that well. It didn't go anywhere, and they, they, they weren't interested. And, and to that extent, I, I, I recognize that because today roughly 90% of advisors or IBD or RA never retire, right? And for good reason that historically uh, they had to finance the, the sale of their own practice via a seller's note. So hypothetically, they're, let's say they're doing a million dollars in revenue and they garner a, a valuation of $2 million on, over a four-year note. That's really half a million dollars a year for four years. Then they have to walk away. And they still maintain all the risk for those four years. You can see why there's muted interest yeah. from today's seller in financing their own exit. Conversely, we're finding that buyers, when they approach sellers with bank financing in hand for 100% of the purchase price at close to liquidate them and move on to the next uh, you know, journey in their life or stage in their career, advisors are departing the industry and they're departing the industry very rapidly. However, if you're trying to accomplish yeah. that via going to the seller and say, not only do I want your practice, I want you to finance it for me. I'd say work on your value proposition. But when you're approaching sellers with the ability to finance, it's a dramatically different conversation. So for those of you that have been out talking to advisors and the conversation did not go well, sit back down with those senior advisors and say, you know, things are changing. Uh, there's new options we have available in financing, but keeping in mind that the most difficult challenge that you all have and we have is an education hurdle. That these advisors have been in the mindset that, exactly as you spoke to earlier, Duncan, of basically whittling their practice down to to 50 clients first and the 10 clients and to pay the bills over time, then it right. stinks, and then they never sell it. So they've been planning this for the last 30 years. Now, to go back to them, to help them recognize that, hey, there is another plan that's available. And that plan is to just get $2 million funded, and we can do it in the next month or the next six months, whichever you're most comfortable with. But from a succession standpoint, we can fund most acquisition transactions uh, you know, with, easily within a month. Uh, and, and really, that those advisors are retiring, and we're seeing more advisors that are willing to actually move forward. But that that conversation cannot be, you know, placing all the burden on the seller and all the risk. But if you think no, about well, the financing option, the, the collateral that's required to fund this transaction is actually what's really an outstanding vehicle for today's buyers is your, the collateral that you're utilizing to uh, retain this financing is the seller's practice cash flow. You're, we are able yeah. to uh, substantiate this note to the bank from the cash flow being developed in that seller's practice because presumptively the seller was taking X amount home and personal income. That's usually a, 
a, very, a fairly high amount of percentage-wise relative to total revenue. Once you add those, that cash flow back into that practice, that's a significant amount of cash flow that we're able to utilize for debt service going forward. To the extent there's not sufficient cash flow in that practice, we can also utilize the buyer's practice to meet the needs of the obligation. So when you're, so just two points again, you're going out and talking to sellers, you need to let them know that, that different financing is available. And then second, know that the collateral you're utilizing is leveraging their practice to liquidate them out. Not necessarily your collateral, right. because again, at Succession, we only utilize an SBA structure with working capital loans. Uh, that's the only segment where we find that our conventional lenders are unwilling to fund advisors. Otherwise, we're using a conventional structure that, you know, I just helped an advisor last week that he, he was going to utilize a, a HELOC uh, to, to purchase a, another practice. I said, absolutely not. We can get this done conventionally. And also, we're not taking any liens on your personal residence, your personal property as per required in the SBA program for acquisition, not for working capital, that, you know, you're not putting your, your home at risk. At the end of the day, there's a personal guarantee in the entire transaction, but you're not secure, securing individual assets. Again, the collateral is the right. seller's practice. So go find as many sellers as you possibly can. Because your your funding scale is unlimited because it's only limited to the extent that you can find another practice with more cash flow. Well said. Well, the interesting thing about that is that we've got such a huge network of potential buyers and potential sellers that uh, I've come to realize that uh, it's actually a lot bigger than I thought uh, initially when we when we uh, ventured into this space. So. Scott, I know there's a lot more ground we could cover here. I'm going to go uh, out on a limb here and, and offer up that if there's anybody listening in who would like to go deeper on a one-to-one -one basis, because I know you've seen it all. You've seen mistakes that have been made. You've seen very pleasant surprises that nobody expected as the transitions occurred. Uh, you've got a great window on this so in terms of where you can go from here next steps join succession lending and scott on linkedin join me on linkedin go to paredosystems.com to our blog to get that franchise ready advisor uh, access to that podcast rather thanks duncan and scott well we hope you got some valuable insights from today's podcast We'll be uploading more webinar recordings, behind-the-curtain recordings, and other exclusive content for our podcast listeners every month. Thanks for listening.